You might want to flip back to page 9 and follow along there with the gospel lesson. I'm not going to reread it at this time, but we're going to go back to those versions a few at a time as we go through the course of the sermon here. Uh, You're sitting in a Lutheran church. Uh, Not the most emotional group of knuckleheads that the Lord ever created, are we? Uh, Lutheranism finds its roots in Germany in particular and Northern Europe in, in general going back to the 16th century. These are not people that necessarily get excited. Uh, whether it's uh, dangerous or happiest things, the, the typical German reaction. And I'm a kind of a mixed bag. I'm half Irish, and we do get excited about stuff. But I'm also German, pretty stoic. Just, I know the Brits are the ones with a stiff upper lip, right? But the Germans, we, we don't even think about such things. We just automatically don't even have to convince ourselves to keep a stiff upper lip. We are not emotional. This is not what we do. Certainly not in church. Oh, no. This is for Pentecostals and Baptists. We are not emotional. I will bear my soul to a person that I'm in love with or a friend. I will bear my body and my heart to somebody that I commit to in marriage. But am I going to bear my emotions in a spiritual setting called the church? <laughs> no. Typical conversation when we come into church. We don't ask, how's your walk with the Lord this week? How are you doing? No, we, we say, how about this weather? Yeah, that rain. How about the lousy baseball teams we got in New York City? We talk about things like this. We do not talk about spiritual stuff and get emotional because that's not what Lutherans do. Having said that, and I'm proud to be a Lutheran in many regards, we miss something. If we do not read the scriptures and go through the scriptures and sense some of the emotion there. But let's start off with God himself. These are emotional truths that we know about the Lord. He's a creator. He's an artist. I don't have an artistic bone in my body, but my father-in-law made his living as an artist. My wife is artistic. There is something wondrous that artists do. Do you think there's emotion involved there? Do you think there was some emotion in God's mind? Anthropomorphism, no, as, as though God has a mind. Do you think there was emotion when he put the universe together? And then on day six said, I can top all that stuff. Here's a human being. A little bit of emotion there. He uses language to describe himself both in terms of a mother and a father, a parent. This is how he feels about us. Like when you hold that child or grandchild for the first time. He uses language uh, of love especially in the book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. We we don't go there very often because it's a little racy. It was actually banned in the 15th and 16th century. Nobody was supposed to read the Song of Songs, but read it sometime because there's God describing how he feels about us in an intimate, using sexual terminology way, that he loves us that much. There's also language in the scripture repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament, where God says, I feel like a spurned lover. I've done all this for you. I've given you life. I've loved you in in eternal ways that you can't begin to fathom, and yet you spit on me. Flashback to the first time you got dropped by a boy or a girl in high school. Or if you caught on early back in junior high. Or if it was in your 20s or 30s, or you went through a divorce. Flashback to that. This is how God describes his relationship with us and how he feels when we spurn his love and his truth. Read the Bible in an emotional way. 
that doesn't get through to you, well, I'm not God. Look at some of the examples that God describes, especially in the Old Testament, where it goes into far more detail as far as the human experience. You think there wasn't some emotion involved as Noah is mocked for building this gigantic boat? And when they go into it with a bunch of critters, I don't know if there were cats involved there or if the cats came afterwards. Who knows? Well, God created cats and mosquitoes. I don't know what was on there, but there's eight human beings on there. And think of the emotion when they come out, and that's it. It's the eight of them. Everybody else is dead. And God says, no, repopulate the world. Think it wasn't emotional? When Abraham, we're not told that he was an incredibly wealthy point at this person, he would be in the promised land, but Abraham, pack up your camels, your servants, everything, leave what's familiar to you in this very pleasant place where you're living, go to a place that you don't even know about, it's got its nice parts, but it's also kind of ugly at times, live amongst the people whose culture and language is entirely different than your own, and I'll be with you, it'll be okay, this is going to be your land. I think there's emotions there. David, who writes some of the most emotional language of the Bible, the Psalm, big chunk of those were written by David. You remember what he was as a teenager when he's been anointed to be the next king of Israel? And yet he lives as a fugitive because the present king of Israel knows that he's anointed to be the next king and wants to kill him. So David lives for years as a fugitive, on the run, isolated, alone. Even when he becomes king, and then as a good king did back in those days, takes not one wife, but eight wives, and then a few concubines on the side, and has all sorts of children from these different women, and there's tensions in that household. I think David didn't go through some emotional things in his life. And to get away from the male figures, what about Hannah? And more than anything, just wanted a child. And she prays, and she prays, and God eventually answers that, and she names the child Samuel. The Lord heard. I think there was an emotion when he took little Samuel by the hand and brings him back to the priest Levi, Eli, to, to be raised in the, in the church. I think there was an emotion for this human being that God approaches as a young teenage woman and says, you're not married, but you're going to be pregnant. You're going to give birth to a child and not just any child. This is the Savior that people have been waiting for for thousands of years. The Bible is to be met, read, I think, with at least a little bit of emotion, Lutheran, and understanding. And perhaps the most emotional character in all of Scripture that is described for us is this knucklehead by the name of Peter. He and Andrew are the first two to say, yep, that's the Savior, we're going to follow him. Those are the first two disciples. Peter's the one who said, Lord, I know that people who followed you for a long time are leaving. You've made that observation, and you've said, are you going to leave too? And Peter's the one that speaks up. The other 11 are quiet. Peter speaks up and said, Lord, I'll never leave. Everybody else might, but I'll be here. Good Friday evening, rather Monday, Thursday evening. After the Lord's Supper has been instituted, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying. They fall asleep. Jesus is praying. Here come the guards to take him away and put him on trial. 
who's the one that grabs a sword and says, Lord, you probably can't handle this. Let me get a sword and start hacking here at these soldiers. Just one guy against 40 or 50. And he doesn't even hit a soldier. He catches a servant, takes his ear off with a sword. That's rash, rash Peter. And then I think the place where it shows up most, the, the emotions of this human being, is in this incident before us in Matthew chapter 14. I think we've probably gone to Sunday school, learned about this lesson. I think we've heard sermons about it before. But just try to understand for a little bit here the emotion that's involved as Peter walks on water with the Lord's permission and the Lord's blessing and, and what's actually going on there. Look again at verses 22 through 25. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. The background? Well, we've got the beheading of John the Baptist that had taken place, and it's recorded a little earlier in the chapter. And then we have the feeding of the 5,000. Not just 5,000, that was just the men. The people had listened all day long to the Lord speak. They're a long way from having any source of food. Jesus takes a few loaves of bread and fish, blesses it, and they start handing it out. 5,000 men, in addition to women and children, are fed. And as a result of what they saw that day, the people who've been kind of interested in Jesus to this point are now really interested, and they want to make what we would say is a bread king, politician. This guy can fill our tummies. In an emotionally bereft culture where it was hard to make a living and food was scarce, this is something unique. You're the man. We just saw this. We want you to be king over us. Not a spiritual king, but a tummy king. I think Jesus, for a moment, is a little emotional there and said, I think I have to go away and pray for a while. Disciples, you get in the boat, cross the Sea of Galilee there. I'll see you on the other side. I just got to go step back for a moment because everybody's to this point has missed the point. I'll see you on the other side. This is the end of the day. That was dinner they ate, not breakfast. So it's already getting to be dusk when they get in the boat. And these are experienced fishermen who grew up living on the shores of Sea of Galilee. They knew that this is probably not the right time to get in a boat and try to cross the lake, but they did it anyhow. And sure shooting, a storm comes up. Experienced fishermen are traumatized. They can't get back. They can't get to the other side. They're terrified. And then there's a ghost. And it says, this is me. Don't be afraid. It's Jesus. And Peter says, I want proof of that. Verses 28 and 29. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked in the water, and came toward Jesus. This really is a defining moment in Peter's journey as a follower of Jesus. Lutherans don't believe in altar calls. This is kind of an altar call. He's heard the truth. 
He sees that this lines up with what the Old Testament had said because he was a student of the Old Testament. He says, I believe, and to show my belief, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm a lifelong fisherman. You can't walk on water. That's why you have a boat. But he says, if it's you, Jesus, you could help me walk in water. I'm going to make my altar call. I'm going to make my, quote, decision, if you want to use that term, my confession of faith, I trust. And I'm going to walk you in the middle of a storm on water. I won't ask for a show of hands or testimonials here. But we've all kind of done that same sort of thing. We're not in the habit of saying, I made a decision, I stepped out in faith. But but properly understood, that's what we do. We understand the Lord has 100% brought us to faith. We make spiritual decisions where we say, I take this seriously that Jesus says he is a savior. I'm going to go visit a church. I'm going to affiliate with that church. I may even take a role of service in the church. I'm going to start behaving like a Christian in my place of work and in my neighborhood and most importantly within the household where I live. I'm going to do these things because I am committed to Christ and he has given me the desire to show that in the way that I speak and in the way that I act. This is an emotional thing. So here's the question. Why don't we keep hitting on all eight cylinders once we've made those decisions, like Peter made his decision. I'm going to show that I believe in you, Lord. I'm going to walk on water. Why don't we just keep it up consistently then? Church participation, living like a Christian man or woman in our households and in the neighborhood. Why does it go bad? Well, it's, it's for the same reason. You made a commitment to your spouse once upon a time, standing in a place like this, looking her or him in the eye. I'll be there for you. Trust me. I love you more than anything in the world. How long did it last till you got the first hint? Maybe that's not going to always be perfect. There's the baby. There's the child. There's the grandchild. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Cherish, hug until the thing learns to talk. Or it gets into the teens and it rebels. It becomes sassy. What an inconvenient thing to now have this. Or to say, I I, I will participate in the, in the life of the church, but, oh, man, those people are knuckleheads. I, 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 I've done this for a long time. It, it, it just grows tiresome. Those things happen for the same reason as Peter started sinking in the waves. He, he lost trust, or like I was showing little Henry, he dropped the rope. He says, I, I, I don't trust the way that I could and should. I, I, I just cannot. And this is where we want to end our discussion about emotions. Emotions is not what saves you. Yes, we should read the scriptures emotionally. Yes, emotions are a gift from God. But if our faith is just emotions, we're in trouble. A classic example of misplaced emotions, and I get most of my illustrations from World War II. I think a classic example of misplaced emotions were the German people saying, the terms 
of peace that were handed to us after World War I have really decimated our culture. We are pitiful as a culture. We've lost our wealth. We've lost our well-being. We've lost our status in the world. A very depressed people throughout the 1920s and early 1930s. Up hops this little mouthy but charismatic artist from Austria. And they say, that guy speaks to us. And we trust him. We're going to be emotionally attached to him. What was wrong with that? Was it wrong to have emotions and be depressed as a group of people who had lost their culture and their significance in the world? No. But the object of their trust was wrong. So be careful of your emotions. And that was a negative example, but the positive way of putting that is your emotions and your faith that, that shows in emotional ways is not what saves you. What saves is the absolute truthfulness and the consistency of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I am your Savior. You're forgiven. You're a child of God for time and eternity. Enough said about emotion. The emotional thing that goes on here. Peter lapses. Jesus holds out a hand. Pulls him back into the boat. I think there's two conclusions that you can draw from this. The first, we kind of close up the book of Romans and say, that's a cool story. I believe that. Paul's got some other chapters that we should read. What I have in mind in particular is Romans chapter 10, where Paul says, it is with your mouth that you are confessing and demonstrating your faith. God's looking for that. You say you trust me. Like Peter said, I trust you, Lord. Show it to me. Peter said the right things, and he attempted to do something. His altar call for the moment, if you want. He's basically saying, I've heard the same things as other people. I get it in a very dramatic way, not putting myself ahead of the other disciples, maybe trying to be a model for them. I want to back up my words and my profession of faith with actions. Years later, Peter will write two letters. And with, in one of those letters, he says this, Though you've not seen Jesus like he had, you too have believed. And he goes on in that section of his first epistle to say this is what faith looks like. It does have something to do with our language. And, and that we can take the gift of speaking and use it in a way that is pleasing to God. We can deliberately say that the whole world, though it uses trash language, and you don't have to go anywhere beyond third or fourth graders nowadays to hear that kind of language. It's everywhere. that we can consciously say, that's not how I'm going to talk with the mouth God gave me. And, and we can consciously say, I, I will open up my mouth to give words of warning to those I love, but even more importantly, words of encouragement to the people that I love. And I am older, and I do have some wisdom that I could share with the younger generation, and I will open up my mouth for their own good, whether they're listening or not. They kind of do hear me. I will open up my mouth to use it in a way that is appropriate according to God as part of my response of faith. And, and I'll take these, my, my hands, Whatever the Lord's gifted me to do with these hands, I will do that for the benefit of other people and to the glory of God. And I'll walk this way and I'll use my whole body and soul and self, like Romans 12 says, as a sacrifice to God 
to show that I do trust in him. The Lord does look for an emotional response that plays out in daily life in the way that we speak and the way that we act. But then there's also this, verse 30, 31. Inevitably, as we step out in faith and seek to respond in a positive way, we're going to laugh, as did Peter. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? There are themes that run throughout the Old Testament. If you read it from cover to cover, shows up particularly, I think, in the book of Job and in the Psalms. Why does God let the wicked prosper and my life is miserable? Why do I continue to sin? Why is there hopelessness in the world? It it goes on and on and, and on. But it also shows up in the New Testament, those same sort of things. Where is God when I need a help? Or I, I walk too far away from God that he no longer forgives me or wants me back. Or why doesn't God deal with the injustice in, in the world? We ask these sort of questions. And God somewhat answers and says, trust me. He doesn't give a complete answer. He never gave it to Job. He simply said, trust me. And he says the same thing to me. But he does go a little bit further in the book of Hebrews to help us understand. Remember, I took on flesh and blood. Jesus took on flesh and blood, experienced everything that we have experienced. You think you've seen injustice? Go to Jesus, maybe a little bit more. Think you've seen disappointment? Think you've seen foolishness? Think you've grown tired? Think you were sad? Jesus also wept. Think you suffered physically? Think that death awaits you? The Lord experienced all of that. So even as we step out in faith, attempt to worship the one but who saved us in our words and actions, he fully understands what Peter lapsed into, what we lapsed into. And Jesus does not cut him any slack. What did he say to him? Oh, you of little faith. He didn't say, could I get you a dry towel? He didn't say, nice try, let's try again sometime. He said, you of little faith, that you quit trusting in me. The number one original sin that leads to all other sin. Oh, you of little faith, you didn't trust in me. But that wonder of wonders in grace extends a hand and pulls him into the boat. You're forgiven, you're restored. You know what this part of the church is called? It's called the nave, where the people sit. The main part of the church is the nave. It comes from the word in Latin for ship. The church was portrayed as a ship in the early ages of Christianity. Big cathedrals were built, and this was called the nave. What was meant by that? Here's a place of safety. Keeping this story in mind, where God extends his hand and he says, on a weekly basis, you're forgiven, you're restored, you're my child. Come into the boat, be with God's people. More importantly, be with me. So the good news again this Sunday, as it is every Sunday. 
we stepped out in faith last week. There's junctures where we failed miserably. There's skeletons in our closet from 40 years ago that still bother us. There's things that we probably said on the road to other drivers as we were driving here this morning 40 minutes ago that bother us. And yet God extends a hand, pulls us back into his ship and says, you're restored, you're forgiven. Again this week, step out in faith with his blessings.